Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's the 29th of January, 2013. And this is a show I've really been looking forward to. Gary Obermeyer is here to talk to us about Edwards, W. Edwards Deming, and kind of looking at Deming and the implications for Deming's work in education. And many of you have heard me talking about this for a long time. And Gary, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. The Hack Your Education Tour is about to start up again. Details coming soon. Coming up are virtual conferences. The School Leadership Summit is in March, March 28th. That's at schoolleadershipsummit.com. There is going to be a reform symposium conference, the fourth one on, and, and also in May. We're going to do a homeschooling conference in May. We're going to do a worldwide STEM X conference. That's STEM and everything else, STEM, STEAM, and the like, uh, in July. Hewlett Packard is sponsoring that. And then we're about to announce a gaming in ed conference and a museum 2.0 conference. So these should be really fun. The recordings of our past conferences are all up. You can see a few of them there. Look for, oh, go to web20labs.com to get the links for all of those. All the recordings are up and they're free. If you're going to ISTE, this is our seventh year at ISTE. So much fun doing what we call ISTE Unplugged. That's the old idea of unplugging the amplifiers and, and the band playing on. That we do a lot of crowd activities that's, that are going to start with our all day Saturday unconference which last year we called Social EdCon. This year we're calling Hack Education because Audrey Waters is going to co-chair that day. Originally known as EduBloggerCon, lots of fun. Durf says she's going to wait for Philly. <laughs> if you're going to ISTE San Antonio this summer, we hope you'll join us. It should be a lot of fun. Coming up on the Future of Education, uh, Thursday, Stephen Bezruchka. It's going to talk about economic inequality. Richard Millington on February 5th to talk about social community management. Carol Black comes back to talk about Occupy Your Brain. You can see the full list there. New on this list, Michael Fullen is going to come on February 13th to talk about education reform and the change process. Also new is Matt Hearn to talk about de-schooling. And Franz Johansson, whose new book, The Click Moment, I cannot stop reading. Uh, it is really, really interesting. I think I'll refer to it tonight, but basically it is a significant reminder of the degree to which luck plays a role in achievement. And if there were ever a message for education right now and the students who don't succeed, this is an important message, especially when you think about the um, so the, the reinforcement effect for success and the Pygmalion effect uh, and, and the numbers of students who leave school feeling like they're failures, something fascinating to think about. Anyway, he's going to come on. If you've missed the show, they're all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form and MP3 at futureofeducation.com. Last, we heard from Holly Epstein, Ojalvo, and Esther Wojcicki. Uh, talking about student journalism, and that was terrific. They were making the case that student journalism is the 21st century curriculum, and they made a pretty darn good case. You can see all of the other shows there. This is a chance for those of you in our studio audience to indicate where you're participating from. Click on the star icon to the left of the map. It's the second one down. You have to click on it twice, but then you can click on the map and let us know where you're participating from. North America, South America, Australia. Someone coming in from West Africa. That looks like maybe Hawaii. Feel free to shout out in the chat and let us know. The time and the temperature. Gary, where are you right now? I'm in St. Petersburg, Florida, in a hotel without internet. <laughs> How frustrating. <laughs> How frustrating. Well, we're sure glad for cell phones. 
Right. Yeah, so I'm really disappointed I can't be... Go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm disappointed I can't watch the chat and see where everybody's from, but I'll, view the, I'll, I'll do the recording and then I'll see it. Yes, and you've noticed that there's a little bit of a lag, and if I step on your words, I will stop quickly and defer to you. Uh, so uh, I apologize in advance for that. It's likely to happen. No problem. What a lot of fun. There is a Mighty Bell space for tonight's show. Mighty Bell is the content and curation project by Gina Bianchini, who previously was the uh, co-founder of Ning. I do consulting work for Gina in education. And I put some resources up in this Mighty Bell space for tonight's show. And you can continue conversation around the show in that space if you would like. So Gary, uh, you haven't been on the show before when we've talked about Deming. We've never devoted a whole show to Deming. I'm not sure there's any way we can do justice in one hour to all of Deming's thinking, but hopefully we'll start to scratch the surface. Could I get you to start with your own history a little? Sure. Yeah, so that, that has a lot to do with how I reacted to Deming when I ran across him and why so much of what he has said and written and done resonated. I will, I'm from Nebraska. I grew up on a farm. And I attended, believe it or not, a one-room schoolhouse from, from my K through 8 education. And it's, that's important because in that time, um, in, in some ways, it was like um, innovations that we're talking about today. We had multi-age grouping. I did mentoring. I did um, I, I did uh, tutoring, and 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 the nice thing about it was um, I had all kinds of time, a lot of time at least, to pursue my own interests because I'd get my work done. I could listen to the other classes up front with the teacher, or I could read, or I could draw. So I I guess you could say that was where I I was um, nurtured to. Um, to pursue my own passion. Now, it was, there wasn't a lot of resource there, obviously. It was a one-room schoolhouse. We had a very limited library, and, but um, that was a great start. And then when I went to high school, which was traumatic for a farm kid, I began to experience the industrial system of education with uh, going from class to class throughout the day. So I began to see in my head this factory model that that has, had been developing for close to a century. And, um, well, not at that time, because that was, was half a century ago when I was there. But for quite some time, the industrial model had been developed and, and perfected. And when I got into teaching, then I saw it even more so. And I began to understand, I began to get, I was frustrated by the fact that so many of the decisions that affected what I could do were made far beyond the classroom around the amount of time, the kind of curriculum, the kind of resources, and that that it was kind of upside down because at the time I was teaching, teachers were pretty much left alone in their classrooms as long as they kept them quiet. And uh, it just seemed upside down to me. So I was part of a small group of kind of radicals at the time who wanted our junior high to be a lot less like a high school than it was, to be more student-centered, to have curriculum more connected. And there were half a dozen of us. A science teacher was our sort of ringleader. And she had, we got permission to do our courses in nine weeks rather than semesters. And we developed thematic courses. She did everything from source material. There were textbooks in the corner, but they seldom got used because she was using real live materials and real live issues, and, and we just have a lot of fun inventing these different ways of serving the kids and, and matching their interests. And for instance, she did a nine-week photography course that was really about chemistry, and then I did a follow-up nine-week course that was, a, that was about the aesthetics and design. And, and so those kind of things just energized us, and we kept getting bigger and bigger ideas, and as you might imagine, we kept bumping into more and more restrictions. And, Within a couple years of, of our really energizing 
our little group began to disintegrate, and we each went our different different ways over the next three, four years. Every one of those six teachers took different paths uh, to find their own, as I like to call it, find our growing room. My growing room was teacher union work. I got active in instructional issues and kept working on this problem of the structure. And it was about the time people were starting to talk about school restructuring. Uh, so I was, uh, so, so that was my path. That was my campaign platform when I ran for national office. I ended up on the NA Executive Committee. And the more I, the closer I got to the national level work, I, the more I discovered that the union was full of classroom escapees. You know, people for, with the same frustrations I had uh, along the way who got into this work and were intrigued by talking about the system and and how to make things better. Unfortunately, because of the way policies are structured and the way the laws are written, unions are pretty much boxed into a corner of talking about wages and benefits and, and little else. So what we did in our and our programs, we help teachers cope with the system. Uh, at the time, stress, coping with stress is a big topic. And, and we help people uh, know how to get good contract language to protect themselves from silly decisions. Um, but we weren't really changing the system. And then one day, I was one of the executive level staff people had been experimenting with uh, what was called RBDS. It was an early version of an electronic bulletin board. He showed it. It had uh, two phone lines in, and he showed it to me, and I will never forget watching that that black screen with amber letters hopping across there as people were typing, and it clicked in my head that this system would be radically different if teachers could easily talk with each other about innovative ideas. So that was that was my turning point, and that's when I knew that I was going to figure out how to help transform education with this kind of lateral communication. And then, and also while I was at NEA, I, I had time to do a lot of reading. And one of the one of the researches I ran across was uh, W. Edwards Deming. And and later, after um, after leaving the executive committee, I was I, I've been involved with NEA ever since, and one form or another in consulting roles. And one of the initiatives that NEA was, um, was sponsoring at the time, this was late 80s, was called the NEA Learning Lab Network. It was a network of school districts looking at, at ways that, that all the stakeholders, community, school board, um, administration, and the union could work together to, to improve the system and improve student learning. And one of the resources that influenced that work very much was W. Edwards Deming. And when I read his work and I was learning about um, quality circles, uh, then it took me back to those days at the junior high, and I began to think about how different our paths might have been had we had a way to communicate with other folks like us and other school systems and have some support and help in in transforming the system from the inside out, basically. That's where I ended up, kind of seeing that there, would, there was huge potential to transform from the inside out with the energy that comes from people collaborating and, and inventing new ways of doing their work and learning from that and taking that a step further. So that's kind of in a nutshell why I do what I do. So Deming is a really unique model for us in part because he was so data and statistics driven, but combined that with what could only be called a psychological understanding of how people work and the limits of data. And in so many ways, the story of our current education reform narratives reflect the very problems that he, that he was so concerned about. In fact, his last book was called the New Economics for Industry, Government, Education. Are you going to tell a little bit of that history, or would it make sense for me to do a two-minute overview? Of Deming? Uh, I'm, well, I, of maybe, Deming. Maybe, maybe we both give our slices, huh? 
Because for me, it was... Uh, well, what so I, I'll give... I'll, yeah, okay. Go ahead. So what I, what I learned about Deming after I was introduced to him is that that he was sent to Japan, or he went to Japan, he was invited to Japan after World War II to help them rebuild. Um, he had been around, he'd been doing this statistical analysis work for a long time. People weren't paying much attention to him. But when he was invited, invited to go to Japan, and their total infrastructure had been so demolished by the war that they started basically with a clean slate. And he helped them in a matter of about four years shift the whole reputation. Uh, when he started, Japan's reputation was one of building junk, toys and trinkets and worthless things. In a, in a space of about four years, they turned around and began to build a reputation around quality. And the rest, as they say, is history because in, in a few years, with the sale of cars that began to threaten the U.S. manufacturers, then all of a sudden Japan was a threat. And, of course, what happened here, but to blame schools for being behind and not the way the system was managed. So I'll add a couple of pieces to that, one of which is Japan felt such a debt of gratitude to him that they started something called the Deming Prize. And it wasn't that he was completely ignored in the U.S., but it wasn't until a film came out documenting what he had done that he started to get more consulting here. But he was largely involved in uh, one of Ford Motor Company's turnarounds. Um, and one of the messages that he gave to Ford at the time was that management actions were responsible for 85% of all the problems in developing better cars. And as you can imagine, that wasn't necessarily a message that Ford wanted to hear, but to their credit, they they took it and, and ran with it. Um, there is this interesting degree to which Deming represents what we've been calling on the show a secondary or shadow narrative, right? The more thoughtful, deeper understanding, which doesn't get adopted by the core, but kind of sits off on the side for those who are willing to take the time and to learn. And and I'm wondering, you know, to what degree Deming is a model for sort of larger change, or is he a model for schools or districts that are willing to to think more deeply about education, but a model that will not be adopted by the core? Do, do you have feelings about that? Well, I, I wish people were listening to his message because it's very relevant for education. Right now, all the focus is on teachers. Somehow we've reached a point where teachers are totally responsible for, for whether learning happens or not. And um, I actually have heard different citations on that percentage thing. In, um, in Lee Jenkins' books, he often refers to um, the calculation that Deming made about 94 to 97% of an organization's problems being the result of the system. And I haven't been able to track down why that discrepancy is there. But in any case, even if it is, even if people are 15%, that's where all the energy is going right now around teacher evaluation, trying to identify and get rid of bad teachers, and uh, putting all the pressure and putting all our eggs in that evaluation basket when teachers are only one factor in the in the learning process, not the least of which a student is a student's him or herself. There is an interesting example. Sorry, if you pause, I no, think you're ahead. stopping, so you'll have to be aware that I'll yeah, right. step on you. Go well, ahead. Well, yeah, so I did pause, and then I and then I then I thought about the additional thought, which now escapes me, except to say, <laughs> oh, I know what I'm going to say. It, 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 it seems that that should should be such a logical conclusion that the system itself, if you, if you imagine, for instance, if you were going to go from New York City to London and you were told you had to go in the Nina, the Pinta, or the Santa Maria, it would be much more difficult to get there than if they let you hop in a 747. But, but that's basically what we're doing. We're, we're asking teachers to make sure that all kids succeed in a system that was designed to grade in sorts. So it, it's just not fair what's happened. 
It is interesting that we have this example just to the north of us. Those of us in the United States can look at Canada and specifically Ontario where they made a conscious decision to not think about replacing or demonizing the teachers or the teachers unions, but to actually work with them and invite them to think through a reform program in student performance and now are at the top of the international charts. That makes a ton of sense probably once you say it out loud, but most people don't realize how integral trust is for that kind of an improvement process. I don't, Deming didn't really use the trust, the, the term trust, but he used the phrase drive out fear. Right. Yes, he used drive out fear, and he also talked about, about um, removing barriers to pride of workmanship, which was, I think is very closely related. So I'm going to take us to a couple of slides. I'm passing by yours, and we'll go back to yours. I put in uh, Deming's 14 points, and I bolded those that felt like they sort of were specifically applicable to thinking about education and education reform right now. Uh, creating constancy of purpose toward improvement, leadership for change, improving constantly, training on the job, the aim of supervision to help people, drive out fear, these, these kill me, eliminate slogans, exhortations, and targets, eliminate work standards or quotas, uh, eliminate management by numbers and numerical goals, you talked about removing the barriers, and uh, putting everybody to work together to accomplish the transformation. Are there any of those that you would want to comment on in specifically? Um, sure. I, I, as, I already, as I already mentioned, I, I think removing the barriers to private workmanship is a biggie. I, I think you've done a nice job of picking the ones that are that are most relevant. But I was, as I was looking at these several times over the last few weeks, I was thinking even the one about toward, moving towards a single supplier, I'm just, that may even have relevance. Um, in that we've got so many different factors and forces pushing on schools now, and so many different vendors out there selling selling products, that are, including teacher-proof products, that, that that may even be relevant. But I really like, I, I think the two top ones in my book are driving out fear and removing barriers to kind of workmanship. I, I, people can't, as he said, People can't contribute to the improvement of the organization and the system if they're worried about their jobs, if they're worried about their rankings, all that stuff. And, um, and, and that was a biggie that we talked about back in the Learning Lab days that I mentioned earlier, that, that fear is simply no way to motivate people other than in the very short term. In the long term, it's counterproductive. And, and I think that's a lot of what's going on. And and on number in my list, it's number twelve. Removing barriers to pride of workmanship. I have I've met a lot of teachers over the years, both as a teacher and as a teacher leader, and since in my consulting work. And I meet very few that I would consider to be, to be bad people. There may be some who are uninformed or could use some help with 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 better tools to work with, but. People go into teaching because they care about kids and they want to help kids grow. So, uh, so anything that can be done um, to remove the barriers to doing that well, it kind of goes back to the uh, to the to the choice of transportation between New York City and 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 Europe. But um, in my book, that's that's at the top of the list: removing those barriers because if people are motivated. I mean, if people are intrinsically motivated by their passion and by the and by the the knowledge they believe in, by the skills they want to help kids develop, much of the rest will take care of itself. And in a culture, you mentioned you're going to have Michael Fullen on um, February 14th. He's done a lot of great work. I'm sure you're going to be talking about professional capital when he's on. Um, just that idea of one one of the ways that that social that professional capital is going to develop is in settings like 
the one I experienced was when I was a junior high teacher, working with colleagues, following our passions, doing what we thought was best for kids, and learning from that. What's different now is that we actually have we have better ways for that to work. We have um, I'm, I'm, part of me is optimistic about what's happening because back when I was teaching, there was no school improvement process per se. There was no there were no lateral networks for us to connect with other people like us, and and there was no there was no focus on shared goals. Most of what happened in our school was driven by textbooks. At least now we have the Emerging Common Core and the possibility of that being used in the right way uh, to create a place where people can create some growing room. So I think the concern that I hear expressed related to the Common Core maybe falls under Deming's um, heading of profound knowledge. Right? These 14 points, and we'll talk in a minute about the seven diseases, these come out of a um, what Deming describes as profound knowledge, which I take to mean the um, deeper understanding of what's truly taking place, how people are motivated, and how change takes place. So I guess one of the concerns about Common Core is that if there isn't that kind of driving leadership that really understands change, will any system like the Common Core ultimately be beneficial, or will it just become another hammer used to beat people up? Well, and that's my concern, too. That, uh, given recent history with no child left behind and race to the top, the hammer probably has the edge here. Um, unless we can put together some kind of movement, some kind of counterbalance by connecting the people who are pushing back the other way. Uh, and you mentioned uh, the profound knowledge, uh, which Deming uh, uh, refers to as understanding systems uh, or appreciating systems, I guess is what he said, and knowledge about variation. And, and having a theory of knowledge, and then the psychology, that's the motivation stuff. And I, I find an interesting connection between what, I hope this is not a bird walk, but I find an interesting, interesting connection between what Deming was saying all those years ago and what Daniel Pink has been finding about motivation. Uh, he refers to uh, autonomy, mastery, and purpose, as I recall. Deming refers to autonomy, competence, and relatedness. It's very, very close very similar. So there are people out there, like Daniel Pink, who are, who are spreading this, this sort of same understanding about how people work, how what motivates people, how people work together, and what really matters. So while I do, I, I do share your concern about Common Core being used inappropriately, um, I, most part of me is hopeful that, that we're going to come through this period of chaos and make sense out of it. Well, again, I, I guess I'm just not convinced that the voices of uh, people like Dan Pink, who are not actually in the leadership role, end up representing what Deming described as profound knowledge. Because doesn't that have to exist at the core of the leadership? Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, it would be a huge help if our next president would exert that kind of leadership. It would be a huge help if, if there were some governors out there exerting that kind of that kind of leadership instead of being worried about finding bad teachers and ranking schools and punishing schools. Okay, so, so I'm going to move to the next slide. This was interesting. I just discovered this today in the New Economics book. But this is a fascinating graph. And I don't know that you actually have this in front of you, Gary. But it's the um, forces of destruction. And it's, it's a looks like almost like a power law curve going downward, where life begins with high intrinsic motivation and self-esteem. And then by the time life ends, uh, all of these things have beaten you up, 
uh, forced distribution of grades in schools, gold stars, the merit system, judging people, putting them into slots, competition, incentive pay, perf uh, pay by performance, numerical goals without a method, explanation of variances, and sub-optimization, every group, every division, a profit center. Uh, and he describes these as causing humiliation, fear, self-defense, competition, high-grade, high rating on the job. How did a statistician arrive at such a human set of conclusions? Wow, that's a $64 question. I was listening to a video of him today uh, making a presentation at Western, Western Connecticut. And it was nearly two hours where he talked, rambled a bit, but talked and and I was I had never heard a presentation where he had such a a human touch to it. The uh, just the the way he well he started by talking about equity and and um, and I hadn't I hadn't heard that much of that side of him. But I, I don't know. It's too bad we can't ask him how he arrived at that. Maybe somewhere in his writing. <laughs> Maybe someone is writing as a way to find out, but but I don't know what the answer to that is. But he even mentioned, for instance, he mentioned in his in that video I watched today, he mentioned Alfie Kahn, who's done a lot of good writing about the negative effects of grades, the negative effect of rewards. You know, his I guess his bestseller was Punished by Rewards, um, and, and so he's been he's been on that same sermon as well. I, I guess you're convincing me that uh, this leadership thing is maybe it is a long shot. Well, I don't mean to sound uh, pessimistic. I think the, the takeaway for me is I don't think we're going to get that kind of leadership at the national level. Uh, even the expectation of a democratic president didn't seem to shift that ground. And so in the absence of that, it does feel as though we have to view the word system, which Deming uses a lot, not to represent the whole system of education countrywide, and, and I don't mean to be so US-centric here, but that system can mean a single school or a district or a group of schools. Yeah, right. You know, somebody else who talks about systems a lot, obviously, is Peter Senge, who's been who's been writing and publishing and speaking on that topic for well, the mid-80s, I guess it is, when Fifth Discipline came out. And, and in terms of leadership and and promise, actually, I guess that's one of the places I would look to. Peter is, has launched through his Society for Organizational Learning and the partner group called Fall Ed, um, a network of schools focused on looking at themselves as a system and understanding how their system works and applying essentially the profound knowledge that, that um, Deming talked about. And they have a, they're building a pretty good sized network with some support from the Hewlett Foundation focused on, on systems thinking and sustainability, which may be another game, which may actually be a game changer. I think as people understand that our, our industrial economy in its current iteration, um, is using more resources than this Earth has to give. At some point, there's going to be a shift, hopefully before we reach the point of catastrophe. But I think that shift is going to begin to draw out the kind of leadership you're talking about, looking at the system and not just the individuals in it, looking at how, uh, looking at even in education, the purpose of education, in fact, becoming one of helping people understand their relationship to the planet, their relationship to the economic system, and their relationship um, to education, and how the, the actions we take as individuals are so interconnected with the system and with the other people in, who inhabit it. Deming did an experiment that was very famous known as the Red Bead Experiment. Do you have enough of an understanding to describe that, or shall I give my rough understanding? Uh, go ahead. It's a, it's a big memory in my head, so I probably would miss some details. So Deming did this, would do this actually very physical 
experiential activity in a workshop in which uh, beads were sorted, red beads and white beads. And he used it to show how there was variation in the system that ended up looking like it was variation in individual performance. And for years, I've wanted something that would give sort of an equivalent, tangible, experiential opportunity to talk in education about the degree to which the ways we measure aren't fair. And I think I may have found it. I'm going to describe it briefly, and you and the audience can tell me if you like it. And I did it at a conference this past week. So you know the game rock, paper, scissors. So I had everybody in the audience who knew how to play the game stand up. Then I had uh, them play against their neighbor. And the losers had to sit down. And the, winter, the winners came to the front of the room. And then they played against each other. And, and the losers sat down. And the winners stayed up at the front until we were down to about 10 people. And I looked at those 10 people. And I said, you're very bright people. You have worked hard in your lives. You deserve success. So it's probably no surprise to you that you're standing up here as winners. Those of you who are losers, it's not that you're any less hardworking or that you're any less valuable intrinsically as individuals. It's just that the chance, the, the, the chance nature of rock, paper, scissors means that you didn't end up a winner. And my intention is to show the degree to which the 90% of students who don't leave high school believing that they are the successful, super qualified, uh, smart kids, in many cases, it's entirely by chance. They didn't have a teacher who caught them at the right moment where someone else did. And we tell this story of sort of hard work and individual achievement that's not fair to the, to the large percentage of kids who leave school feeling like they, they are not inherently learners. And when I told this story, I actually did this twice. I, I told it as a story in front of a group at uh, Google. And a group of youth who were at this particular conference came up to me afterwards and said, even those of us who are in the top 10% don't feel like we're winners or learners. We leave school feeling that we're you know, uh, almost fake. Does, does anybody like that? Does it, does it come close to doing the kind of thing that, the, that would give some sense of the unfairness of the school system? Do we want to defer to the audience for a second here? Yeah, I'm waiting to see. Oh, my, my chat wasn't updating. We all feel like failure, failures nice as Chinese culture. Um, I don't think they're addressing that specifically, so, so maybe I haven't done a great job. Throw in Denise Pope's research, 95% admit to cheating. Well, that would be interesting. <laughs> well, let's move on to the next slide. It's Deming's Seven Deadly Diseases of Western Management both the seven deadly diseases plus his lesser categories. And I've done the same thing here. I've bolded those uh, items that I think are specifically related to education right now. So lack of constancy of purpose, an emphasis on the short term, annual rating of performance. Deming said it's purely a lottery, which is fascinating. Uh, and the use of visible figures only. And then in the lesser category, I bolded neglecting long-range planning, relying on technology to solve problems, seeking examples to follow rather than developing solutions. Are there any of those, Gary, that you would want to kind of drill down on? Well, the one I've been paying a lot of attention to is the, uh, I, I don't have the wording in front of me, but the one about uh, the, the ratings and rankings, which one was? Say again. Can you reread re the one that had most to do with uh, the reading of people, the ratings and rankings? 
Well, he said that one of the seven deadly diseases was an annual rating of performance. Yeah. And his quote yeah. was, it is purely a lottery. Right, right. I think that's, that's the one I relate most to because of, again, because of the stuff that's going on with teachers, that, that there's millions of dollars being invested in developing reading systems for teachers, um, and they're done on an annual basis. And just as we do annual tests for kids, those tell us almost nothing. And, uh, and and when you have a rating system, you're forced to have somebody at the top and somebody at the bottom. Um, I'm, I'm taken by, and this, this also relates back to Lee Jenkins, who I, I think I mentioned earlier, um, that as soon as you as soon as you do the rating, somebody's got to be at the bottom and they wonder why. Somebody's at the top and they often don't think they deserve it. And and we would be so much better off if we didn't have those systems. In the video I watched today, I'm so glad I saw it. He says 15 years would be about right. <laughs> I'm not sure I understood that last comment. Can you say it again, Gary? Oh, I, I was saying in the video that I listened to today, uh, Deming was asked about rating systems, and he and he was about he's asked specifically about annual reviews, and he said the very same thing that that that, that seven deadly sin statement says, and he said once every 15 years would be about right. Interesting. So I have your slides available. Would you like to go through them? Um, sure. If you, if you start with the one that has the three school buildings. I'm on it. We're all looking at that. Okay. All right. But given my story, this is this is the image that came up in my head as I was thinking about the assembly line school. And as a teacher, I think as a teacher, I went through three what were called North Central evaluations where we would, as members of staff, would fill out forms and and an external team would come in and they'd make judgments about the quality of our system. Um, and and I, I began to, and I noticed in those evaluations, nothing very much of any substance ever happened. We did our best as staff members to prove that we were doing a good job. And because the people from the outside were uh, educators too. They did their um, their best to emphasize the things that were going well. Uh, they were required to say some bad things, but for the most part, in my experience, the evaluation that we went through every seven years didn't make much difference. And and I began to understand that from reading um, Dan Lordy, who wrote about school teachers, and Rosabeth Moss Cantor, who wrote about organizations that people in cellular organizations feel powerless because you've got such a little space that you have control over. Um, and, and so this diagram represents what was happening every few years in education back when I was teaching and not constantly like it does now. We'd reach a crisis point which was defined, some sort of problem was defined in the system and then externally somewhere, policymakers or or folks in the in the bureaucracy would come up with a solution that would get imposed on schools. Now, if you'll click to the next slide, Done. I don't know when you're there. Okay, um, the next slide is meant to indicate that the problem with these external solutions is they often came down in the form of another program, a new assignment, a, a new um, a new professional development. A solution, and and the net effect was to assign more, assign more little spaces. And the more spaces that got get assigned, the more chunks there are along that assembly line. The smaller the space gets. And I I made the external decision making label at the top bigger to imply that each time we go on through one of these crisis and solution struggle cycles, we make we reduce the growing room at the school level and increase the size of the apparatus for external decision-making. When I started traveling, when I got active in the NEA, well, at the state level, but especially at the NEA level, when I, I started doing 
on the executive committee, you spend a lot of time on the road attending the meetings uh, and visiting schools, visiting locally, visiting uh, affiliates around the country. And, and I spent a lot of time on airplanes, and as, as most new travelers, I spent a lot of time talking to the people next to me. Um, and, and it was amazing to me how many of the people flying around on those planes were ex-teachers. And, and the conversation we would have almost always, it was almost always identical. They would talk about the, um, that their jobs now were more flexible, they had more prestige, they had more, they had more room to do, to use their time the way they wanted. Typically they had more money as well, but the main thing was the, the prestige and the, and the sort of excitement of having a varied job. And they would almost always then, the conversation would almost always end with, or get to the point of saying, but I'm really still a teacher. I'm really still a teacher. I still use those same skills in the work I do now, even though I have more prestige and more freedom and more money. So I began to think about that powerlessness that, that I learned about from Roosevelt Moss Panther and, and thinking about if, if the system's ever going to be turned around, the people who work in those little spaces have to understand the value of the skills and knowledge that they have. So I began thinking about ways to that we as the union could help build that build that efficacy basically. And and it and it all and it came back to that little group back in my junior high. We had a lot of confidence, although we probably didn't we, we probably weren't I know we weren't engaged in profound knowledge to the degree we should have been because we were we didn't have the goals, we didn't have the formal process. We were just following our passions and following our hearts. So but still, we were growing as a group in, in our confidence and in our, the size of our ideas. So, Steve, as we click to the next slide. We're there. The, the, okay. Um, one of the most important gifts from Deming, in my estimation, is his Plan, Do, Study, Act cycle. It's uh, highly related to what we know as action research. It's, um, it's as, it, as it indicates here, you begin with a plan, you do the plan, you study what happened, and then you act on what you learned from that studying. And this is a piece of developing that profound knowledge is if you don't have an understanding, if you don't have an appreciation of the system, if you don't have an understanding of knowledge, if you don't appreciate how the psychology of how people work, uh, you don't. You're not as effective in this, in these projects and innovations as you might otherwise be. And and the most important point about plan, do, study, act, and about quality circles and all that stuff is that people in them grow. It's a generative process, and people learning from one activity builds on the next, and it's a it's a it's a reinforcing loop of growth. And, and and like the, the folks that I worked with back at the junior high, we eventually ran out of growing room. The system just got tired of having us try to push on it, and we got tired of pushing. So so we went other ways. And if you read the literature on quality circles, the whole movement died because the folks at the management level didn't really want those little circles to grow. They wanted, they wanted to be able to manage those circles. They wanted the people in the system to change, but they didn't. Them, they themselves didn't want to change. Um, that the evidence is real clear in the literature that that's why the movement died. Next slide. It's up. Okay. So by comparison, then, so so when I go back to the essence of it, I think what well, what's happening to us now is that we're in the death throes of the industrial way of thinking, and I don't mean. Uh, or as, as Sengi points out, we really aren't out of an industrial age. We still produce cars, actually more than ever. We still dig coal from the ground, and we still produce a lot of stuff. We produce more stuff than ever. But what's different is that that we're moving in as we reach the limits of growth. We're going to have to shift to an organic model, in which 
in which people are acting in relationship to the larger system, understand and appreciate the larger system. And instead of having somebody on the outside design your work, the people on the outside design the system that lets you grow, in other words, removing those barriers to pride and workmanship. So what I've done in this model is, is try to illustrate in a very simple way the difference in the two, the two models. In the industrial model, decisions are made externally. In an organic model, the system is created to set up to let people who do the work take a look at their work, do the statistical analysis, use the tools of analysis to identify places where they can change and improve, do that, learn from that, and make further adjustments and, and further growth. So I put aim at the middle because that's also another thing that Denning talked about a lot. He says, without aim, there is no system. Uh, or uh, we substitute the word purpose. Without a purpose guiding the organization or giving people, um, without, if you, when you have a purpose, I guess that you put it this way, with a purpose and, and a shared vision about what you're trying to accomplish, you free pe people up to be innovative and be creative in doing that work differently and better over time. Then if we go to the last slide. And this is where you bring in the self-organizing school. Right, right. When I was on the executive committee at NEA in the early 80s, I was doing workshops based on that theory about helping teachers discover efficacy, the efficacy development. And I was I began to think about, and I was also involved in a project that NEA was sponsoring called Mastery in Learning, and the purpose of which was to put decision-making about learning as close as possible to the students. Um, and, and so it's kind of the antithesis. So it's really actually an early example of, of what's illustrated here in that if you have an agreement on AIM, that, that's the work of continuous improvement. Continuous improvement is closely aligned with plan, do, study, act. The, the way we know continuous improvement in schools today is very closely aligned. The only problem with what happens all too often in school improvement is that it's focused on deficits. It's, it's informed by those rankings of schools. It's informed by the rankings of kids rather than building on positives. So, so what I've done with this slide is really showing what I think are three of, oh, I'm sorry. I, I jumped a little too fast. I get a little bit excited when I talk about this stuff. When I was doing the workshops in 1982 initially, I started using the term self-organizing school. I was thinking of that from the perspective of somebody who had been trained in the NEA as an organizer. Um, but I learned subsequently that self-organization is also a biological term. And, and if you read chaos theory and, and any other number of sources, self-organization is an important factor in what, what's going on as living systems adapt and change in their environment. Uh, so what I've done with this illustration, I have a, a small set of theories, I think, and this, this slide summarizes why, why I'm hopeful in my hopeful moment. Um, even though there are weaknesses with the common core, it's the beginning of some agreement about what schools are for. Right now, I think that's going to shift as the realization around sustainability hits, but, but at least that system is that structure and that system is in place to give people people are getting practice at rewriting curriculum to fit those shared goals. Continuous improvement as a formal process, very closely aligned with Plan Do Study Act, is that generative process that helps people grow and learn in their profound knowledge at the school level. And last but not least, the one the idea that was triggered in my head when I saw that electronic bulletin board back in the early eighties at NEA fundamentally different about the world we live in now is our high level of connectivity. Uh, even when I'm here in a hotel where the internet went down, I'm connected to this conversation because of that. Uh, that is, those three things taken together, I think, are, are the reason, are, the, are among the best reasons to be hopeful about where we're headed. 
So I, I love this slide, and so do many of the people in the chat. And I'm sorry, you are going to have to watch the recording just to see the chat. But I'm going back to your industrial model, organic model slide. And I do a weekly podcast with Audrey Waters. And Audrey was one of a small group of people who were invited to go to Palo Alto and write up a document that became a Bill of Rights and Principles for Learners in the Digital Age. And uh, there have been a variety of responses to this particular document. But I had one that was surprisingly strong for me, a negative response. And the response I had was, this idea that some small group of people would gather to write up a Bill of Rights for Learners, which in and of itself isn't um, negative in any way. But what it seems to me, every school, every family, every class would want to do is to develop their own sense of, of what's really important and to go through that process rather than some small select group writing up a Bill of Rights that almost felt a little bit elitist to me. Now, I don't know how the, the chat's going to respond to that. And you probably haven't seen that Bill of Rights. But it does feel like we often substitute outcome. Even in the reform movements, the progressive movement, we fall into the same trap of mandating a solution down rather than creating a platform for process. Right. And, and I think that's an example of how the, the common core could be treated very differently if it were shared as a template. And each community had an opportunity to engage in talking about what it means to them. And, and then have a feedback loop in the system for the people who, the original authors, to learn from that. And that's what we're missing. We're still, the common core is still pretty much in place from the industrial model way of thinking and not the organic model of way of thinking. If you, if you think about it for a minute, think about the common core or any shared sort of statement or bill of rights. It's, um, if it's treated as a template or, or if you think about it as DNA, in an organic system, the DNA in our bodies and in the bodies of plants and animals aren't terribly different from each other. There's so much commonality in the DNA. Um, What's different is what gets manifested when that DNA is in a different environment. So I think we need to begin to, you need to free ourselves to think of schools the same way. If we have some shared values in our culture, if we have, if we have a shared, if we have a, a commitment to a, a common aim, then we can free up folks at the community level, not just those small teams in the junior high, like the one I was part of, but those teams as well as the community to, to engage in conversation around what those templates mean and about how they how they ought to grow in their respective communities. Gary, we're really at the close of the hour. As a courtesy to our guests, we do finish on time. Is there any last word you want to give before we say goodbye? Well, I'd just like to thank you. I mean, this has been a great experience. It, it, it's caused me to dust out that old presentation I did 30 years ago and kind of update it. Uh, but I'd like to know if there are any, any questions or if we have some mechanism for questions to, to come in after we're done. Let's, let's put in your email address. Oh, well, the, the mechanism is this Mighty Bell Room. If you go to the blog post for the show, you'll see the link to the Mighty Bell Room. I'm going to put it in the chat again for those who are here. And we'll have Gary join that Mighty Bell Room, and then you can continue to ask him questions. It's the perfect use of that space. Oh, Peggy beat me to it. But that link is there. And, and Gary, if you go to stevehargadon.com and look for the blog post on tonight's show, you'll see the link in there. Right. Uh, and Gary is on Twitter. I tweeted that out. And it is at Gary. Tell me again, Gary, at Gary Obermeyer. But, well, no, use, use the learning options. Use at learning options. Um, I, I try to keep my education stuff on learning options and my personal stuff on Gary Obermeyer. Either one is fine, but learning options is preferred. That's terrific. OK, Gary, thanks so much for coming on. That was really delightful. Uh, thanks, everybody, for being with us. 
Thursday night, U.S. North America time, Stephen Bezruchka on economic inequality should be really interesting, especially given the recent report that came out on uh, on lifespan and health and the United States being at the bottom of most of those categories in, of the industrial nations. should be a fascinating conversation. Take care, everybody. Good night, Gary. Night. Thanks. Bye now. All right.